Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Jesus told his troubled 12 just before the time of his own death, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Are those empty platitudes, such as would be spoken at a graveside by those who do not genuinely have hope? Is that what that is? No. No. Those are not cliches. Christ promised to his followers, and by extension to those here, peace I give with you, to you, that's you, you get peace from Christ, and it's his peace that he's giving. Jesus was not living in some kind of Pollyanna optimism about the state of this world, as if he had no idea what he were talking about. Jesus stood beside graves, that of Lazarus, and he watched Mary and Martha, whom he loved, weep the death, the literal, physical death of their beloved brother, and Jesus wept with them. Jesus, I guess, closest earthly friend, John the Baptist, had his head cut off, and it was told to Jesus. Jesus knew more than you know what is in man. He knew the machinations of the human heart, the level of corruption in the world, in those around him. He wasn't blind to these things, throwing out platitudes about how everything will be okay. He knew the brokenness of the whole world, the brokenness of the world that you live in, and he said in that world, this world, that you can still have peace, his very peace, that he would give that to you. It's not some blind optimism. That's why he says, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Because what kind of a peace can this world give to you? Being what it is, it's no firmer, no more secure than a single strand of the hair of a horse's tail suspending a great dagger above your head. Yes, it's not fallen to kill you yet, but the only hope you have in this world is that single strand not snapping, and at any point it's ready to break. You know the vicissitudes, the changes that you always experience in this world, and if your peace depended upon this world, upon its circumstances in your life now, upon everything being great and cheery, You wouldn't have peace, or if you did, it'd be very temporary. Jesus knows you live in that kind of world, and in the most unpollyanna way possible, he says, not as the world gives to you do I give you peace, but I do give you peace. This is why he said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because that's where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. There's no certainty there, but lay up treasures in heaven. You can still have a peace, a peace that Jesus gives, not as the world gives. In this world, you can be tempted to turn to the world for peace, and you will not find it. You will be like the children of Israel in the Old Testament running to 
Egypt, back to Egypt to Pharaoh and his mighty chariots to find peace when they are afflicted by their enemies. And in your case, at least these words of that Rabshakeh are true. Behold, you're trusting in Egypt. And so are all who trust in the world. That broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him, and such is this world to any here who trust in it for peace. But see the other part of what Jesus says, not as the world gives do I give, do I give to you. I do give to you. If the world's kind of peace is temporary, uncertain, vaporous, what kind of peace is Jesus' peace that he bequeaths to you? Permanent, certain, absolute, unchanging, unmovable in any circumstance. That is the kind of peace that Jesus offers to his people. Imagine yourself taking a hiking trip out into a valley somewhere where you are alone, only the sound of birds and water, and there you are with great expanse of green grass spread before you, still water here, a lake scenery, and in that moment perhaps you feel a great serenity. Don't you wish you could take that and wrap it up, just put it in your pocket and take it with you into your cubicle or amidst your ever-noisy children? And the promise of Scripture is, yes, you can. You can have a peace that does not depend upon your circumstance. Not a peace out there around you, the peaceful valley. A peace that's in here. My peace, Christ says, do I give to you, not as the world gives. When Scripture makes commands to believers like, do not be anxious for anything. Or again, do not fear anything that is frightening. The Bible is not just taunting you with impossible commands. These are keepable for the believer empowered by the Holy Spirit. You can have a peace within you just like this. It's Jesus' peace that he experienced amid tears and toils and difficulties of life, yet an inner peace that he had at all times and could at the very end even commit his spirit into the hands of a father who loved him. And you can have that peace. You must have that peace. It is your birthright as a Christian. As Christ said, my peace do I give to you. Peace to you is Jesus' word, not just at Christmas, but it is Jesus' word to the Christian at all times. And it's, in fact, the word of Jesus we find in our text today in the Gospel of Luke. As we come to chapter 24, you probably remember that Jesus has risen from the dead. It was a bleak picture of him dying. His followers were fairly disillusioned by how things were playing out in the world. They were disappointed. They didn't believe his promises that he would resurrect. And yet, then on the morning of the third day, some women came from the tomb saying, the tomb is empty and angels have appeared saying he has risen. And they didn't believe the women. Then Jesus appeared to Simon Peter, and they began to believe. Jesus appeared more recently to two men who were walking, disciples walking on their way to Emmaus, a seven-mile journey. Jesus appeared to them also. They have returned now to the original disciples of Jesus, the inner group, the 11 minus Judas, to tell them. 
And that's what they're discussing as we now visit them in the text and find that in this disillusionment and confusion and doubt, Jesus is going to interject, amazingly, peace for them and for you. So let's look at the text in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. This text makes clear that your peace, if it's to be true and lasting, has to be tied to nothing less than Jesus, Jesus himself, the real Jesus. It's the only way. And specifically to his resurrection, as we'll see. As Jesus is trying to calm the anxieties and the fears of his original disciples, he does it by proving what? By proving that it's really him and that he has really risen from the dead. And he assumes, rightly, that if they really believe that, they wouldn't be troubled and doubts would not be rising in their minds. They would be what? At peace. That Jesus is alive and with us today, that he's really resurrected, that he sits in heaven, that spiritually he's present by his spirit, that's the basis of our peace, just as it was the basis of their peace. If you don't really believe that, if you don't really believe that, you can't have peace. Not permanent, lasting, true Christian peace that comes from our hope. It comes from believing what you're looking at in this text, that this Jesus of Nazareth was dead, really, truly, and then was alive, really, truly, and lives now. If you believe that with all your heart, you can have peace. If you doubt, just like these disciples, you will be troubled. And Jesus will challenge you as he challenged them. Why are you troubled? Why are you doubting? You can have peace. Peace to you. Believe that this has happened. So if you find yourself this morning, which maybe you do, burdened by quite a lot of anxieties and cares, I want to show you from this text how God provides an antidote for them. Jesus' wish for his original peace to you is a wish that he extends to you also. If you're his follower, peace to you. Not anxiety, not fear, not racked with guilt and miseries. Peace to you. Inner tranquility, peace to you. He desires it for you. And one way he know, we know he desires it for you is look at what he put in your Bible. Not by accident. Because he wanted you to see this text this morning. 
So we're going to consider this text in the way it's presented. And it has really two parts. On the one hand, you see the troubledness, the troubled state of the disciples. Looks a lot like us because they doubt. But on the other hand, you see the peace which Christ brings and is working to bring them in the text. You see the troubledness, you see the peace. So let's consider those two things in the text. Let's begin with their troubled state. Because that is the one thing clear in the text. When you look at these disciples, they are troubled. The text says it about them. Jesus says it about them. Look again at the first two verses. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they didn't have peace. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, the many anxieties and troubles of Jesus' disciples at this point in history have been chronicled for us, even before this point, for almost an entire chapter. We have seen how since the time of Jesus' death, they've been, I don't know, disillusioned. They expected him to be an earthly Messiah to run out the Romans and to establish them upon literal physical thrones in the land of Palestine, but then instead he went and died. And so from that time... Jesus' disciples have been discouraged. Maybe like you feel discouraged today. They've been discouraged. They've wanted to believe. Since there started to be some evidences of a resurrection, they've wanted to believe, but also doubts have been intermingled all along the way for them. You kind of are reminded of that at the beginning of our text because the event takes place when, as they were talking about these things, and these things are specifically all of the evidences that Jesus isn't dead anymore. They haven't fully come to believe it, although they're starting to get to that point when the women first told them and said they didn't believe. When we got last week to verse 34, and the two on the road to Emmaus came to them, they told the two, the Lord has risen indeed, because he's appeared to Simon, that is Peter. But as we'll continue to see, it is a faith that's mingled with doubts. And the troubles and anxieties they will continue to feel are not coming from the faith. They're coming from the doubts that remain. Even 40 days afterward, after the resurrection, we will see in the Gospel of Matthew that at the very end, just before Jesus is literally lifted up into the sky at his ascension, it says when they, his followers, saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Forty days of Jesus appearing many times to many people and still some doubted. In fact, in our text, Luke only speaks generally of the eleven because not all the eleven were there. One was missing and John's gospel tells us it was the disciple named Thomas. And you remember that after the event of our text, when Jesus disappears again and leaves, the ten tell Thomas earnestly, Jesus appeared to us, and Thomas, does he believe? No. He gets that unfortunate name of doubting Thomas for that one event, poor guy. But he does doubt and says, unless I see him myself and touch the wounds, I will not believe. So with the disciples, we have, even at this point, faith mingled with doubt. That explains why they're in a troubled state. Even before this event, they're troubled. 
The two on the way to Emmaus are disappointed. The disciples return to their fishing. They're discouraged. They don't know what to do because they don't believe the promises of the Old Testament and all that Jesus had said about his own resurrection. And that is, of course, you are probably aware, the same source of your anxieties right now. If you believed perfectly, say even in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that that means, you would not have those anxieties right now. Uh, maybe some of the burdens of your care for others would remain, certainly, but your anxieties would melt away. Wouldn't that be nice? That is a consequence of faith. And when we lack faith, when we have doubts, when we struggle with faith, just as for them, so with us, there's fears, there's anxieties, there's those kinds of internal discomforts. We agree with that great preacher Charles Spurgeon when he said, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven, a great faith will bring heaven to your soul. In our, if you want to call it, postmodern, if that means anything to you, in our postmodern context, kind of how we think today or whatever we may be now, doubt is sort of celebrated. You've seen this, especially among the young. Doubt is almost celebrated as a very good thing. Now, there's a part of this with doubts that can be good. That is, if someone wants to argue that we should be honest about the doubts we have rather than pretending we don't have them, that's good. So far, so good. But we have to admit also as Christians, having a Bible, doubt is not a good thing. It's not a commendable state. I haven't seen Jesus commend it yet. He's uh, rebuked it several times. Doubt is not inherently good. And you can see that even in the things it produces. When you lack faith in Christ and what he's accomplished and what that means, then like these disciples, you are troubled and disillusioned and confused and fearful. Are those good things? Certainly not. Lack of faith is not good. Christ is gracious with us as we see when we lack faith. We can be honest about our lack of faith. But it's not a good thing. Doubt is part of what plagues the modern way of thinking, postmodernity. Post it's a Pandora's box out of which flow so many evils and bad things. And we can see that even in this text. But notice what's interesting in our text is that these disciples, often like us, are so weak in their flesh, they're so weak that it's not just their confusions before that are troubling, but even when the event takes place that should get rid of all of those problems, Jesus literally appears in front of them to clear away all their doubt. That's actually when new doubts and anxieties begin. In the text, you see that in verse 37. So Jesus appears and then what? But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. That is, they assumed that they saw a ghost. This is not the first time they thought Jesus was a ghost. You may remember once when they were sailing at night on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus came walking upon it. They cried out, it's a ghost. And I suppose that makes sense. You don't expect to see a normal human being walking on top of water nor do you expect to uh, find someone die on Friday and then they're in your house on Sunday speaking with you. You too might revert to some superstitious belief or some other idea of how do I explain what's taking place right here. That's what they do. But note the remarkable comment given in verse 41. And while they still disbelieved, 
for joy and were marveling. Jesus is fighting against their doubt, as we'll see. But even as they're coming to believe, really, I mean, there wouldn't be joy if there was not some degree of faith. If they didn't at least begin to believe that this could be Jesus himself, then where would the joy be coming from? So they're starting to have joy, and yet they're in such a weak, confused state coming out of their doubt that the joy from believing pushes them back into doubt. They are not believing because of joy. Maybe that's just a way of saying that they were overwhelmed, some hyperbolic statement, but it it seems that it's pointing again to their unbelief, even as they're coming to belief. The same thing, faith mingled with doubt in them. That's what we find over and over. There's some faith, but it's not yet completed. They still disbelieved for joy in that case. Jesus is clearly there. He had predicted clearly at least three times in his ministry that he would rise again. He had even said it would be on the third day, and now it's the third day. They should have believed, but they simply did not believe, and therefore they deserve the challenge that Jesus gives them. His very first statement is, peace to you, all well and good, but his very next line is, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And notice that those two things go very closely together. The being troubled goes right with the doubts arising in your heart. The two are together. If they didn't have the doubts, they wouldn't be troubled. So these first disciples are basically as burdened as you and I tend to be in our doubts and the weakness of our faith. That's a lot like us. And there they are. And so Luke has presented for us first a picture of the disciples in a troubled state. But that is really just a theater on which to show the glory of Christ because now we move in the text from them in their troubled state to the peace that Christ wishes and will work to give them. Look again at the first words, verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, Peace to you. Now that was a common greeting in the ancient world, but that doesn't mean it was cliche. It doesn't have to be cliche just because it was common. It's not any more cliche than the many times that the Apostle Paul will begin one of his letters, Grace to you and peace. That was drawn on a common greeting from the culture, but when Paul used it, it was different. It was rich with meaning, pregnant with meaning, and the same thing applies here. Peace to you could be taken as, hey, but that's not what Jesus means. He's taking the literal words of the greeting, and he intends them in a way that no other person has ever intended them. Grace to you, or peace to you. Because peace is a craving that is universal, every person in this world today wants peace, even those who start wars. There is a desire for an inner sense of fulfillment and peace. Because of this, you see, even in our common greetings today in many different cultures, that peace is a part of it, just like it was there. I will say this wrong, but in Mandarin, there's a greeting, zao on, and it means morning peace. On means peace. 
Or today's Jews often greet each other with the word shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. The most common Arabic greeting, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. And peace is even one of the many meanings of the word aloha in Hawaii. Yet again, when Christ takes this, it's not a common greeting. He intends peace upon them. It's more than just hello when he says it. And the reason it transcends every other common greeting in the way we use it is I can wish you peace, and I should, but I can't give you peace. But when Christ wishes you peace, he gives you peace. His resurrection, as we'll see, is the very basis for this peace. Peace I give to you on the basis of what I've accomplished in rising from the dead. So when he says peace to you, it's not just hey, it's he's provided everything to provide peace in your life. And he wants you, it's a wish, he wants you to have that peace. And he can give it to you, he's bequeathed it to you as his follower, and that's true here as well. That's the reason that in the rest of our text, what is Jesus working to do? To convince them that he's actually risen from the dead. Why? Because they can't have peace. They can't have their troubles and anxieties quelled unless they believe that fact, that he's actually resurrected. You might wonder why that is. Here you are, you're a Christian. Of course you believe in the resurrection. But you leave here each week and you still struggle with anxieties and fears. It doesn't seem to be working. Yet if you truly, on the level of the heart, ingested and took in as part of your person a real confident faith in this simple fact of history that Christ resurrected, it would rid you of anxieties and fears. We know this biblically. Death in the Bible is considered our sort of final enemy. It's our final human fear and anxiety. We read in Hebrews chapter 2 that when Jesus came, it was a weapon, a fear of death, was a weapon that the devil uses to keep us in bondage to himself. And when Jesus came, he snatched that weapon away. He got rid of a fear of death. That's the freedom that Christians enjoy. Now you might say, okay, he's done that for me, but a lot of my fears are not about death. I mean, that could be a fear for you. I'm afraid of snakes and spiders and heights and water. But if you think about it, why are you afraid of all of those things? Why are you afraid of heights? Because you can fall and there could be death. Why are you afraid of snakes and spiders? Because there are some varieties that are poisonous and can kill you. Why are you afraid of water? Because you can drown. Why are you afraid of small spaces? Because you can suffocate. Many, maybe most, all of our fears do attach themselves in some way to death. Not all of them, but many, many, many do. You're afraid that a criminal will break into your house at night. You're afraid you will get into a car accident. You're afraid you will get cancer. You're afraid of wars and rumors of wars in the news. It's all attached to death. This is why the resurrection calms our fears. Because the resurrection is the taking of the bee... And the plucking out of the stinger of death. And now you could put the bee on a little string and it could fly around. Don't do that. That's mean. But it's not going to sting you anymore. That is the way the Bible presents death. Because of the resurrection, the literal 
physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We read, oh death, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? Christ plucked it out and was rid of it. Jesus, by resurrecting, provides the very basis for our peace because he takes that final greatest fear, the one attached to so many of our other fears, death, and he removes it. Ideally, for the Christian, when we believe in the resurrection, that's what is intended. Christ's resurrection, his coming back to life, is the first fruits of your resurrection. If he really rose from the dead, then you as his follower will rise from the dead. If his bones, his ashes are still somewhere scattered on the earth, so will yours be forever. You will go into non-existence. But if he didn't, if he rose, if that's really his body standing in front of these ten men, then you will resurrect in a perfected body to live on into eternity in a perfected world attached to a perfected heaven. This is to remove the fear of death and therefore to calm our fears in so many areas of life. This is why Jesus is spending so much time with his disciples convincing them he's not a ghost. It's his actual body that's before them. And this is not just, this is recorded because it wasn't just for them. This is intended for you right now because you have fears, lots of fears. And this is in your Bible for this purpose, among others, to calm the fears that you have. To make you a genuine, true Christian who can live with an calm serenity, even in the face of the worst of fears, of fear of death, who can live different than that and demonstrate that to the world. That's why this is here. Therefore, it's important for you too to pay attention to the proofs that Jesus gives. Luke didn't have to record them, but he did because you need to see these proofs given through eyewitness testimony. And you can see in the text that there are two proofs that Jesus did resurrect, literally resurrected from the grave. That it was, as verse 26 says, Jesus himself, not another. The first proof is given as the sort of outward part of Jesus' body in verses 39 and 40. He says to them, see with your eyeballs, see my hands and my feet that it's I myself. Touch with your hands me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. John's gospel informs us that what Jesus was showing them was not just his hands and his feet. He was showing them the marks where the nails had been. And he showed them the wound in his side where they had driven a spear to make sure that he was dead. Why show them these things? Because if you lived in Jerusalem in that day... No one else is walking around with marks of crucifixion nails in their hands and their feet. No one else is walking around with a hole in their side where they were speared during their crucifixion because if you had those marks, you were a corpse. No one else has them. Therefore, if Jesus shows these evidences to them and they can touch them and see just like Thomas wanted to do, 
then it is proof that it's not a ghost and it's not an impersonator giving them a false hope. It's not some illusion invented in their mind. It is Jesus himself. And if he himself is alive from the dead, then everything he said, everything said about him in the scriptures is true. There is an eternity. There is a future hope. There is a future resurrection. If that's really Jesus, your life can have meaning beyond the grave. You can have conscious existence beyond the short lifespan you're granted here. Only if that's really Jesus physically in the flesh. And so he says to them, see, touch. It's not some passing conclusion to the gospel. This is key to our hope and to the entire Christian message. This is why, for example, John, who's in that room, the apostle, later when writing his first letter, 1 John, will begin like this, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He, maybe he touched the wounds. And then that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, you might say in reading this text, hold up, how does this convince me that Jesus raised from the dead? He's not here physically for me to touch his wounds. I don't get to see him. It convinces you because this is genuine eyewitness testimony. Look, you probably are aware that there's sort of crisis happening in Palestine today. Have you been to Palestine today, this week? How do you know? that there's a crisis happening in Palestine because someone who saw it told you on the internet or wherever you get your news and you believed it. That's how you learn most everything. It's a question of is it a credible source and if it's a credible source, then you believe it and it changes the way you think about the world. It changes the way you act. Is that ridiculous of you to do? No, you can't be everywhere. Eyewitness testimony is incredibly important and what you have here in Luke is Luke recording carefully eyewitness testimony. You have four Gospels to give you more testimony historically that this took place. So yes, this is for you to build your confidence that this really happened. Even if you're not touching the wounds, these men did and they died for their testimony. What occurs in this text occurred for them, but it also occurred for you upon whom the end of the age, ages has come. Because you cannot have peace unless you believe this is true. You have to take hold of your own soul and determine you will not let yourself go until you believe, truly believe, the things that are written in the scriptures. You can't settle for a sort of half-hearted acceptance of the Christian teachings because it's expected of you. You will end up just like these disciples here, filled with doubts and anxieties and worries and fears and uncertainty and disillusionment Jesus is working with them and he succeeds with them, as you'll see in the book of Acts. And he's working with you to move you past that into a strong faith. Honesty about your doubts is commendable, but doubts themselves, not so much. We are working past those into a firm belief, a belief that can hold on to you even if you face, what, the lions of the Colosseum or whatever death awaits. Can you face that with confidence? 
only if you believe that that's Jesus standing in front of them. Jesus gives more than one evidence to them. He shows them, look on my outside, look at my wounds, here I am. But in case they think that's a mirage, he goes further and says, well, let me do what only a physical body can do, verses 41 to 43. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. They are fishermen after all. And he took it and ate before them. You have maybe seen a movie at some point that was portraying a ghost as eating and what always happens in those movies. They eat the food and it falls onto the floor underneath them. That's fiction. That's not real. And yet that's probably an accurate description, I suppose, because that's the point Jesus is making. If he were a spirit who just appeared as a man, but was spiritual and non-material, then you can't eat food. Maybe you can trick someone's eyes. I don't know how that works spiritually. But you can't eat food. You can't eat a broiled fish. You don't have a stomach. You don't have physical substance to take that in. And therefore, Jesus eats a broiled fish before them. When in the Old Testament, you do have, for example, angels appearing in the form of men, such as to Abraham before they went down to see Lot, those, those angels could eat food because they were in the form of men. But they suppose that Jesus is not some angel taking a form. They suppose he's a ghost, that he is immaterial. And therefore, he's proving to them, no, I am physical. This is contrary to many of the opinions today, and some of which maybe you've heard of, that Jesus' resurrection didn't physically, literally happen, but it was more that Jesus was a good example. And the resurrection is a myth that is meant to give mankind a sense of hope that things will turn out good even when they're very bad. But you know what? If the resurrection's a myth, that myth's a lie because things won't turn out good because we'll all die and that's the end, whether good or bad, and then it's gone. The resurrection's only good if it actually happened physically and literally. So they can't believe he's a ghost, an apparition, an illusion, some kind of confused state that they're in and they see him, any of those modern notions of what the resurrection might be, it can't be that. If it's that, why are we wasting our Sunday mornings? Go home and watch football. What are we doing here? We are here because we believe that Jesus ate a broiled fish three days after he actually died. And if you're in Christ... He's the first fruits and you follow after. And you have to say, do you believe that? When you come and face death, do you believe that when you have breathed your final breath and the coroner announces you deceased, that afterward you yourself will eat a broiled fish? It's the hope of the resurrection. As a side note, I don't know how food works when we're resurrected, okay? Paul said when he talked about a resurrected body, it's hard to understand. He said there's the bare kernel goes in the ground when you're growing crops, and then the thing that actually grows, it's, it's the same thing, but it's different, right? And same with a resurrected body. So Jesus ate, so we can eat. There's a wedding supper of the lamb, I suppose, that we'll be eating, but Jesus didn't eat for himself. That's how he differs from us or even himself several days before. He didn't eat to keep himself alive. He's not going to die. He can't die. He's immortal. He's raised immortal. So if he's eating, 
Why is he eating? He's eating for them. That's why the text says he ate the broiled fish before them. He's eating for their benefit. He's eating for your benefit to prove to you a resurrection, as difficult as it may be for the modern mind to accept, is a reality. It really happens. And if it can happen for one, it can happen for any number of persons. It's no longer impossible. And it happened for one. It happened for Jesus Christ. Jesus wants you to know that that's true this morning, just like he said to them, peace to you. Why do you doubt? Believe this. The same he says to you if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you have to ask yourself, can you say with the Apostle Paul, you know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise you also with Jesus and bring you into his presence. If you can't say that, if you don't know that, you can't have peace. It's an illusion. You have to believe that that is true. Can you say, as Paul does just afterward, on the basis of Christ's resurrection, these words? Can you say this? So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, some are getting older, others may be young but have diseases, whatever it may be, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction of getting sick, of getting old, of suffering here, whatever it is, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things not that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're temporary. If you put your hope and your faith on them, you get temporary peace. Because they're temporary. Don't focus on those things. It's the things that are unseen. The resurrected Lord. That's eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. It's a tent. You don't live in a tent, okay? It's just for a time. You take it down. If that's destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Can you say that? Do you believe that? Is this life all you have? If this life is all you have, you are of all people most to be pitied. Yet, if you have a resurrection coming, you are of all people in this world most to be envied. Imagine if we took this to heart, Imagine if death was a lot like getting a shot at the doctor. You don't look forward to doing that. Okay. It's going to puncture your skin. doesn't feel very good. But unless you have some great immense fear of needles, that doesn't shape your entire life. If you have an appointment in one month to get a shot from the doctor, it's not shaping your entire life, controlling you, shaping every decision you make, keeping you awake at night. No, it's just an unpleasant thing that's coming, but you endure it, you go, they give you the shot, and afterward you walk out of the doctor's office and you continue to live your life, only hopefully in a better physical state from the shot. If you are in Christ, death is very much that way. No, we don't look forward to it. It is quite unpleasant, but it's not the most unpleasant thing. It is something we endure so that we can go on living our life better than before. That is the Christian's hope. 
Jesus had a very difficult life, died, and when he resurrected, had a very good life and continues to and shall forever. And that is the pattern for you. It's hard in this life. The reason you can have peace when it's hard is you know that after the difficult experience of death, after you cross the narrow sea, and it is painful and it is miserable in many cases, but after that, if this Jesus ate a broiled fish, then you will live into eternity in a place of perfect paradise and peace. And that makes our afflictions now small and momentary. You may say, Okay, you convinced me of that, but what about all my other anxieties that I have that are not attached to death? Fear of public speaking, anxiety in social settings, my concern for my children. Will they believe in Christ? That's not attached to death. But that is to make much too little of the resurrection of Jesus because what the resurrection of Jesus guarantees is not just that your body will resurrect if you're a Christian, but it's that this entire world that is groaning in this pangs of childbirth to be restored, it will itself experience a sort of resurrection and all of the fears and pains and bad at that future resurrection, the, what scripture calls regeneration of all things, all of those, when our bodies are resurrected, all of the universe will be resurrected too and Every bad thing will be undone. The tears you have will be wiped away. The fears you've experienced, the tragedies you've lived through here will probably be explained to you in the context of God's greater purpose and you will live on in a healthy, perfect body forever. If Jesus ate a broiled fish. And if you believe that, peace to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we do believe that this text is true, corresponds to a historical reality, is not a myth, is not some imagination, is not a political power play of some early figures, is not some manipulative tool. This corresponds to what took place in space and time, in history. And because that is true, we know that we shall live even when we die. And the one who believes in you shall never die. We shall sleep and then awake to glory. I pray you'd give this hope to us as your people. Give us a fearlessness before our opponents and before the world, and before tragedies that we might stand apart from the rest of the world as a city on a hill. And I plead, Lord, with all my heart for those who are present, who whether they are conscious of it or not, do not have this guarantee. Do not have the Spirit as a seal, as a certainty that they will be raised from the dead. I beg you, Lord, that you would not allow them to continue in the state, that you would stop them, that you would strike them with conviction, that you would spoil their pleasures if need be, that you would by your kindness, if necessary, woo them toward repentance, whatever is needed, that they might not enter into an eternity of judgment apart from you, but would instead experience a real resurrection into paradise forever. I pray that Christ would have the reward of his sufferings in the redemption of his people for the sake of his great name. Amen.